begin. The internet, a doorway to the world's most fascinating and terrifying communities. To explore it is to interrogate that which makes us human. Only some are brave enough to venture into these other worlds. Only some are brave enough to be called. The Internet Explorers. Hey everybody, welcome back to Anderson Brothers, The Internet Explorers. I'm your host, David Anderson. And I'm your co-host, Evan Axel Anderson. Yeah, so the past month, there's been one particular event that's really dominated. I, I think like people's interest around the globe. March Madness. And that, <laughs> uh, besides that, oh. it is actually the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which, depending on who you ask, has been pretty imminent for, you know, a few months to two years to eight years to several decades. Yeah. Uh, this has been a long time coming. Yeah. Even though everybody was caught off guard, I feel like folks who were paying attention definitely were like, okay, yeah, I suppose this this makes a certain amount of sense. Despite the fact that it's bad and shouldn't be happening, uh, it's been on the radar. Yeah, it makes sense from like a like a geopolitical standpoint. And while that all that that whole element of it really doesn't have anything to do with the internet, so to speak, we thought we should talk about it because now that the war has actually broken out. So much of it is taking place online. Everything from uh, trying to use social media to like gain support mm -hmm. to cryptocurrency being used to help fund the Ukrainian military to the proliferation of misinformation and disinformation yeah. to trying to get people to go over and fight. I don't even have to get people, but there are people who are like trying to be like, let's go fight and like organizing online uh, to actually go to Ukraine. Yeah, I feel like the Ukrainians ask for help and they're expecting like NATO to send them tanks and planes and instead they're getting like folks from the internet being like, I'd, I'd love to command your troops if that's okay. I'm great at command and conquer. Yeah, I mean, it is what is being called by people who love crypto stuff. The first crypto war. No way. Which I don't necessarily like that phrase, but I do think it speaks to the fact of how much the internet is really a part of this entire experience of, of trying to fund, trying to uh, inform. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it feels like the internet is a very fraught place to try and navigate. Um, even on a good day, it feels like it's hard to kind of wade through the uh, overload of information, all the data that you can see on social media or on news outlets, right? And especially now with all of the stuff that's going on around this, the huge influx of intentional, unintentional um, sort of noise um, around the war, uh, it's hard to kind of get a grip on what exactly is happening. And I feel like we could do a good service for a few episodes here, just kind of taking time to both introduce our listeners to uh, certain ideas, certain background and context around the war, uh, what's going on, why it might be happening, what certain symbols and ideas and terms mean. Mm -hmm. Also just explaining how do you deal with this kind of issue in general, because I feel like this is a recurring issue of online having so much noise coming at you and trying to understand what's important and how do you synthesize it into a narrative that you can use to kind of guide you through uh, your consumption of news. Yeah, I had first posted back when when Russia initially invaded Ukraine, 
that that you're not immune to propaganda is is the meme. The the Garfield the Garfield on, on news looking at a photo of himself saying like you're you're not immune to propaganda is the yeah. phrase. <laughs> He's like I wonder who that guy's or what that's for. Yeah. <laughs> And I received from somebody basically a question about, well, how do you, David Anderson, remain immune to propaganda? And I explained, I don't think that we are immune to propaganda either, but I do think that it's worth saying that we do have certain standards like, you know, like as we go around, because we're putting stuff on a podcast, I think we both uh, uh, view it as like a responsibility to try to vet everything we're going to talk about. And- I do think it's yeah. really useful to have an episode talking about how we do that. And we're, we're probably just going to do that next episode. Um, this episode, we're going to talk more specifically about yeah. the war in Ukraine and what is going on with it. And to the best of our ability, we are going to talk about it as accurately as possible. One problem that the war introduces is just the fog of war. Yes, there's going to be misinformation, people just getting things wrong. There's going to be disinformation, which is people deliberately trying to mislead you. But then there's also just going to be like confusion. Yeah. Trying to make sense of things that are coming out of a war zone where infrastructure is being damaged and communication is not always reliable. So I want to put a big parenthesis over everything we talk about in this episode. Asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. (laughs) And that asterisk is, it says... It's possible that what we're talking about is not completely accurate because the information is not completely accurate. But that's one of the – usually we actually try to get a lot lot of distance between an event and when we talk about it so that we don't have to deal with that. I'd love to be able to utilize that more in the future. Big asterisk asterisk. next to every episode. It's possible that we're not right about this thing. Keep that in mind. (laughs) Yeah, well, in this this case in particular, um, because it is still ongoing, I think – we're probably going to find out for many of these things that it, it, the story is not quite what it is initially thought to be. And one of the things is that I, I think is really telling is that the fog of war as a concept comes from commanders not knowing enough about what's going on on the ground. And right. so if the folks who are directing this war aren't always up to date or completely aware of what's happening on the ground, you can be sure that you, somebody sitting on your couch in the United States, definitely aren't getting all the information. Yeah. Um, and not not only that is you're also again you're being propagandized by both sides by the Ukrainians and the Russians right yeah um, and so you have to be aware of you know uh, I need to take everything with a grain of salt you know things are playing out and I have to be willing to say that my opinions need to be held very loosely based on the fact that the stuff that I'm using to make my interpretations is potentially false images or is being intentionally constructed. There's lying by omission because certain stuff isn't being shown, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and being aware of that. Also, I think it's probably worth saying, Evan and I both are are both against the invasion. Mask off time. I, we, we don't <laughs> like war. <laughs> I Well, I say that because with both of us going around trying to like investigate the full extent of the presence of the war online, yeah. You cannot take for granted that people are against the invasion. So I would like yes. to say we are just because I think that provides yeah. a lot of important context to everything that we're going to say about it. Putin is a bad, evil man. Yes. But again, there's like, you know, it's weird. Like in real time, you're seeing <laughs> not, not like seeing people like getting mean with their Russian American like neighbors or like throwing out bottles of vodka that are made yeah. in like Estonia or whatever. Because just really bizarre kind of like acts of tribalism that I'm like, I, you know, 
let's go let's be serious russia is like an autocracy like that's like being like the king of england in the middle ages did a bad thing therefore some english peasant i'm gonna beat that person up because i you know i don't like what their king is doing it's like that person has no control over that it's been very alarming how quickly people are willing to show their support for ukraine slash disdain for russia yeah by just targeting random russian people yeah or like there's like a sandwich place that's like we don't carry this like Russian brand of mustard anymore. Yeah, we're we're pouring out all of the Russian vodka. We're burning all of Dostoevsky's books. <laughs> right, and it's like what got like that's that's not doing anything. That's a really weird form of like signaling your support that is probably just hurting people that really have nothing to do with. It's the worst any of this. It- if you're if you're liberal, it, it, this is why it's bad, right? Is because you're hurting innocent people. You should be sad about that. Everybody should be sad about that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's exclusive to liberals. <laughs> but if you're conservative, here's another reason. It's just signal virtue signaling, but you're also just hurting people rather than actually just like putting out a bumper sticker. It's yeah. you're just like hurting people for no reason. That's not actually materially going to improve the lives of I don't know, a family in Kharkiv whose apartment just got blown up. Right, right. We're going to get into it. We got a lot of things to cover, um, just kind of a a broad bunch of random things to cover because there's so many like weird angles to this whole thing. We're doing it in media res, right? We're, we're, We're trying to do this like as things are happening, which is why I think history is better than the news. <laughs> read less news, read more history. <laughs> All right, we'll see you after the jump and we'll provide some uh, some historical context first. Yeah, let's go. Okay, so... David woke me yeah. up early this morning. He said, Evan, we got to record because of Ukraine. Get all your Ukraine facts together. Uh, and now it's like eight <laughs> o'clock, which is really early for me. But you know what, folks? I've got all my Ukraine facts here <laughs> ready to tell you about a little bit of some. Get all background. your Ukraine facts together. <laughs> Get all my Ukraine. They're just laying around in my room. I haven't cleaned my room, uh, but I've got them now. And I'm going to go through them here with you, largely because part of the Russian narrative is utilizing some of this deep history. Right. One of those is sort of an ethno-nationalist narrative, which is that Ukraine isn't a real country, at least upon the basis upon which nations are formed, which is there's a distinct language and identity. Uh, Ukraine doesn't have that, right? It's a weird formation. Does it Does it matter, though, Evan? Like, like who cares if they are like you know, the same like ethnicity as the Russians or whatever. Why would that even stop them from having a sovereign state away from Russia? Like who cares? Um, Yeah. I mean, that's a good point, right? Is basically we really shouldn't care that this is an issue, but I feel like so much of Europe's idea of like what makes you a country is sort of this like whatever century and a half old idea of self-determination of and nationhood and these kinds of things. Okay. And this explains to a certain extent Ukrainian nationalism in general, which is this intentional movement away from Russia, which is moving itself towards Europe in a way, right? Ukraine has been part of Russian political formations for a very long time, right? They're part of the Russian empire for a while. Back during the Russian Revolution, they declared independence and the Russian Bolshevik government came and defeated them by the 1920s because Russian new Soviet Union wanted to maintain as much territory as they could. Mm -hmm. 
And so when we're sort of thinking about the modern context for a lot of this, right, we're thinking about after the Soviet Union falls apart, Ukraine is an independent Soviet socialist republic and forms a new country after the fall of the Soviet Union. There's already a bit of appetite for moving away from the Soviet bloc, moving away from the Eastern bloc, and moving towards integration with Europe, right? And this is, in the 90s, it's a time when tons of countries in the former sort of Soviet sphere of influence in the Soviet ambit were joining the European Union, joining NATO, right? By 2004, basically the majority of what is now the European Union and now the modern lines of NATO are formed, especially in like the Baltic, right? You've got Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, which are members of NATO, members of the European Union. And these are so former Soviet republics. They had a independent state far longer than a place like Ukraine did. Um, so there's already this sort of idea of we don't want to be under the Russian boot again. Yeah. Uh, we don't want to be part of some kind of Russian imperial project. And it's seeming like Ukraine is kind of moving in that direction in the early aughts, right? Trying to move themselves away. But this is an issue because Russia, uh, under (laughs) Vladimir Putin specifically- Doesn't want that to happen. Yeah, they don't want that to happen, right? There's, you know, if you listen to some of the things that Putin has been saying and some of the actions he's been taking, it's about making sure that Russia- is a full-on successor to the Soviet mantle of empire, to the Russian mantle of empire, and that it can sort of fulfill the requirements for a superpower again, right? They, yeah. want, they want to maintain that prestige. And so in 2004, there was Viktor Yanukovych, Viktor Yanukovych, who is going to be a major antagonist in the story leading up to the beginning of the war, is a pro-Russian politician, and he is running for president, He is a guy who will falsify elections, who'll rig elections by voter intimidation, by having uh, these kinds of guys who are called titushki uh, is a a phrase. Basically, they're like thugs, essentially, who will go to voting places and intimidate people into voting for Yanukovych's party. And he lost in 2004 basically because of a revolution, the Orange Revolution, where basically everybody said, hey, uh, that wasn't a free election. You rigged this election against the, the popular vote. We're going to revolt until we have a new election that is overseen by the international community. That happens. And lo and behold, Yanukovych doesn't win the re-election. Mm. Come 2010, when Yanukovych is up trying to win the presidency again, he wins by a slim margin in a legitimate election this time. Though who knows? Uh, the guy has resorted <laughs> to underhanded tactics to win office before. And then immediately he had his political rival, Yulia Tymoshenko, imprisoned. This is a a very, very popular with lots of authoritarians. It's a popular move, yeah. Basically, at this point, we're talking about a point in Ukrainian history where the question is, is Ukraine going to become a legitimate democratic republic? Is is it going to actually become a real democracy? Or is it going to go the way of Belarus and Russia and Kazakhstan, which are these countries that hold elections, but they're fake, right? The system is set up in such a way that no other party besides the ruling authoritarians party is ever going to win. Do you think that Lukashenko, the dictator of Belarus, is actually incredibly popular that he wins 90% of his elections Mm -hmm. all the time? We know in Kazakhstan 
that the dictator there wasn't popular because there's a huge revolution there just a few months ago that the Russians had to come in and quell because they're like, hey, we don't need another democracy on our borders. Right. We don't we don't need Kazakhstan going the way of Ukraine. Yeah. And so the question basically in the early teens, right, in 2010 to 2014 was, is Ukraine going to become a national democracy or is it going to go the way of Russia and uh, Belarus and Kazakhstan? And so basically one of the things that uh, there was a lot of appetite for was European integration. And there was going to be some European Union-Ukraine Association Agreement, which was not Ukraine joining the EU, but it was going to move them into more uh, economic integration, more political integration, like visas were going to be much easier to get to go into the European Union. And Yanukovych at the last minute said, no, I'm not going to sign that. We don't know why exactly. We do know that he probably got the word from Putin to say, hey, uh, I don't want you to do that. Don't do that. Well, again, there was a huge revolution, This uh, a revolution against this one guy, Yanukovych. Uh, and this was the Euromaidan revolution in 2013. This is where all those images started coming out of like all, streets yes. on fire, like yeah. people with their homemade riot gear out, yeah. um, which is crazy to think this is like a decade ago Yeah, at this yeah, point. It years, feels like eight, yesterday. Uh, nine years ago. Nine years ago, yeah. yeah. These were some of the most like stark images of revolution happening online, I think, like up until that point, I feel like it was like a very impactful to be able to like witness a revolution kind of like going on in real time with such like high glossy like imagery. It was highly publicized. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like how do you capture this and like really communicate to people like the emotional narrative of what's going on here in a lot of those images? that I I personally hadn't seen before. And I don't know if those were really around online before. So this is getting us to 2013, the Euromaidan revolt, which was basically a reaction to Yanukovych saying, no, I'm actually not going to intentionally integrate our country with Europe. And so this is where we get all of these scenes of like really intense rioting, uh, burning tires, barricades, people with like testudos of like SWAT uh, yeah. shields and things like that. Right? It's very like post-apocalyptic, like armor, things yeah. you'd expect to see in like Fortnite or Left for Dead or pick your <laughs> pick your zombie apocalypse thing. For him. <laughs> but this, the reason why it ends up getting so out of control is one, the government's unwillingness to change course, but also that the police ended up being incredibly brutal with these protesters and then just opening fire with live ammunition, right? This was the thing that really changed things around was that the political appetite to overthrow Yanukovych and his government really came from the fact that that government was willing to murder its own citizens to maintain power. Things do not go well after this for Yanukovych's government. Yanukovych has to flee the country to Russia after this. He's escorted out by Russian Spetsnaz, basically. And an interim revolutionary government is set up to one that would end up being much more pro-Europe because that is where the political appetite and political will is. But not everywhere in Ukraine. Not everybody in Ukraine was particularly interested in integrating with Europe. There were lots of protests and revolts in cities like Kharkiv and Odessa and Donetsk and Luhansk and in Crimea, which is really where the story of Russia versus Ukraine starts to happen in 2014 in that February, just a, you know, a week after the uh, Euromaidan revolution was over, we see Russian 
probably VDV uh, airborne Spetsnaz guys, special forces from the Russian airborne, show up in Crimea, Russian units with no insignias. And the Russian government completely denying that we didn't send any troops there. That's what are you right. talking about? I forgot about that. That yeah, that Russian troops were showing up, but they like technically, which ironically is also what Donald Trump has suggested. Just take yeah. all the insignias off of your stuff, and nobody can like technically nobody can prove it was you. Vladimir. They, they were your soldiers. But basically, the the Russians were like, "Hey, um, we need Ukraine, and we in the most important asset that the Ukrainians had was." warm water ports in the Black Sea. Why does the warm water matter, Evan? Oh, Russia has a huge coastline on the north. It's all frozen over though. You can't, you can't like, well, you're gonna make all of your fleet icebreakers then go through these huge sheets of ice. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, so just the fact that you can actually sail through it basically. Yes. Okay. Yeah, basically Russia, despite having a huge coastline has like basically no actually useful naval ports. Mm. And so Ukraine is really important for Russian geopolitics. So the Russians are saying, okay, well, if we're going to prevent the worst catastrophe, which would be that we're completely shut out of our one last warm water port area, they said, well, we're going to just take this. We're going to annex it. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at, in 2014, a completely disorganized, entirely infinitesimally sized Ukrainian army. Basically, the Russians show up and say, hey, so we own this now. What are you going to do about it? And the Ukrainians say, I guess we're not going to do anything. We're not particularly motivated to yeah. fight you. <laughs> and so the Russians hold a referendum, and shockingly, 90-something percent of people in Crimea want to be part of the Russian Federation. Good for them. Well, p- folks in some of these cities are like, well, we want that. We want that for Kharkiv, and we want that for Odessa, and we want that for Donetsk and Luhansk. And really, the only places where a separatist movement really takes off is the breakaway republics, the people's republics of Donetsk and Luhansk. And these are right on the border. These are right on the border with Russia. So yeah, so they're in Ukraine, but it's it's very easy for Russia to just kind of be like, well, it's right next to us. We could just basically <laughs> I mean, say this if is you part, want to of be Russia. part of us. Yeah. And it's about at this point that the Russians say to themselves, well, in for a penny and for a pound, we're gonna send like just regular Russian army guys into these regions to prop up these republics. And that's basically the stalemate we've been in since 2014. And that's really the beginning of the Russo-Ukrainian war, right? Is when Russia denying, denying, denying that they're actively involved, but actually being the only reason that any of these republics exist, any of these separatists right. exist. Uh, it's a Transnistria situation. You know, the, the Russians will, or it's a South Ossetia situation. It's an Abkhazia situation. The Russians will support separatist breakaway republics in all of their neighbors who are thinking of maybe integrating with Europe in a bid to try and undermine those governments' legitimacy. Right. There are active revolutions in those countries. How could you do business with the Georgian government or the Moldovan government or the Ukrainian government when it's clear that their own people don't even care to be administered by them. Mm. So basically there's been a pretty static battle line since 2014. So Volodymyr was, uh, I'm saying it like he's my, my friend, <laughs> Volodymyr Zelensky was voted in 2019, right? There's been two presidential elections. There was the immediately after the Maidan revolution in 2014. And then there was the government in 2019, which basically ran on the revolutionary government was really corrupt, and we're going to have sort of a centrist 
peace-oriented, right, reconciliation with the Russians, mm. end the war in Donbass by making some kind of deal with the Russians, and integrating with Europe was basically the platform of uh, Zelensky, a actor, comedian. It'd be it, like if John Stewart actually like gains political power. Vladimir Zelensky's government has been campaigning on the idea of reconciliation with Russia. What is really interesting to me is that that doesn't mean that they were naive. They're seeing the Russians build up a bunch of weapons on their border. And for them, it was about de-escalation. But you can go back to the election cycle back in 2019 when Alexei Arestovich, who is now a major advisor to Zelensky's government, he does like these daily briefings uh, on the military situation in the country. Back in 2019, he had done an interview where basically he presaged everything that was going on, right? He was yeah. like, hey, um, the only way that this ends, you know, reconciliation is going to be nice and we would prefer that. But he says, realistically, I don't think that there's any way for Ukraine to establish its bona fides as a country because you, Russia is constantly trying to undermine that existence until there is some kind of confrontation with Russia, a military confrontation. And he says, and I believe it's just the Russians are going to invade us full on. And he describes essentially everything that's happened. He's like, I, you know, I bet there's going to be units coming out of Crimea attacking us. There's going to be troops coming out of Donetsk and Luhansk attacking us. They're going to attack Kharkiv and Sumy and Chernihiv, and they're going to go for Kiev and try and kill the government. Mm -hmm. uh, and he says, and the only way that we can potentially show that we deserve to exist is by not just holding off the Russians, but winning a war against the Russians. Mm -hmm. And so what this says to me is that basically when we're looking at like the military situation, being like, oh, my gosh, the Russians who are basically a superpower, the, the pure military to the United States are being defeated by the Ukrainians. And part of it is, yeah, we've overestimated how good the Russians are because we right. still think that they're the Soviet Union. Right. Uh, the great the great menace when that's just not the case. But also Ukraine is not the Ukraine of 2014 anymore. The Ukrainian army isn't 3,000 active members. It was something like a quarter million active members. You've got 300,000 Ukrainian territorial defense guys and, and uh, military folks ready to go at a moment's notice when the Russians finally attacked. And I think the huge buildup of, of resources by the Russians was basically the Russians realizing this. They're like, yeah. hey, um, they have a huge army now, and so we need to have a huge army if we want to actually succeed here. And I think the Russians were trying to replicate Crimea, right? They were hoping that there actually wouldn't be a whole lot of defenses, that if they did shock and awe the way that the U.S. military in Iraq did, they could just blow up a bunch of stuff uh, in the first hours of the war, show up with a bunch of paratroopers in Kiev, take Zelensky and his government ministers hostage and say, hey, you're, you're going to give us concessions, right? You're going to say Donetsk and Luhansk are free republics. You're going to sign this waiver that you're never going to join EU and NATO, all of this stuff. The problem is, is that the Ukrainian army has basically been waiting for them. The Russians have been telegraphing what they've been doing for two yeah, years. For years, they've just been waiting for this to happen. So much yeah. so that when Arestovich was doing this interview, he's like, I think it's going to happen sometime 2020 to 2022. Yeah. And, and he's basically right, like on the tail end of it. Yeah. So, you know, again, this is why I feel like folks who have been paying attention are not shocked by this. Maybe the one thing that they're shocked by is that Russia would actually invade because at that point, it's all cards on the table. You know, that's a huge gamble, right? When you finally put the cards out on there as a country, that means that if you have a bad hand and it's turning out the Russians had a bad hand, yeah. that's revealed. 
And now the geopolitical situation around the world has shifted monumentally. Yeah, the moment Russia is that Russia like, can't pull yeah. off. Uh, we're going to define what successful means, but like a successful invasion against Ukraine. They, they've had ideal. Basically, it's like this is ideal situation. This is a huge army of yours is sitting on the border of an adjacent country. Yeah. And you have not just that, but the Belarusians who are like, yeah, you can use our territory to attack their capital 30, 50 kilometers like away from our border. If you're not able to pull that off, there's no way that the Russian army could actually ever project power anywhere. At least not as it exists right now, right? And so at this point, really what it's saying is that to the United States that, hey, our main geopolitical rival, it's not Russia anymore, it's China. And so this means that the Pentagon can now, is like, oh, thank God, we only have to, (laughs) we only have to prepare for one war with the Chinese. But, but. To be clear, though, Russia still has nuclear capabilities. That's the thing, right? And that's the thing that, that's, that's that's the big trump card that Russia has. Yeah. And that's why you can see there's all this nuclear brinkmanship going on with Putin. And when he's getting to that territory, has the U.S. ever threatened to like actual U.S. officials ever said we're threatening to nuke a country? No. You know, why? Know why? Because we've never even had to get to that point. The U.S. military is so incredibly overwhelmingly powerful that basically we just have to say, we're going to send an aircraft carrier to you. And that's enough to make people uncomfortable. The Russians at this point, it's at this point, they're like, well, what if we pull the grenade and blow us all right. up? What, what have would they you explicitly do said, have the Russians specifically said we're considering no. nukes or are they just really heavy hinting at it? It's really heavy hinting, right? Okay. There's this idea of the, the, the Russian um, nuclear uh, forces, which are basically not like ICBMs coming out of a silo headed for you know New York kind of thing, but no. it's like units with uh, rocket launcher capabilities that can take a nuclear warhead yeah. are at the ready. Like they, they can be deployed. Right. Um, is basically what that means. So, you know, tactical local size nukes could be used at some point uh, because those units are ready to ready to go yeah. is really what that means. But to say that like, oh, they've nuked Kiev or something like that, as though that's like, oh, and everybody's just going to be like, OK, yeah, that's fine. Right. <laughs> no, know? that that complete that enters a whole new yeah. uh, uh, echelon of global politics slash human history, I feel, to be yeah. honest. But uh, before we get into our digital aspect of all of this, there's stuff to be, I think, very hopeful about with a lot of this stuff, which is that basically outside of India, who is trying to balance between Russia and China and, and the United States uh, and doesn't want to reveal their hand, China, who really relies a lot on Russia as a potential ally and partner to counterbalance the United States, doesn't want to do anything. But outside of that, basically the entire international community has said, yeah, no, this sucks. We're, we're, <laughs> we're going to sanction yeah. uh, Russia. And so the fact that the free world, the, the non-authoritarian world has basically said, yeah, we're not going to sit around and watch this happen, has been really cool and honestly kind of encouraging. It has been really cool. Like this kind of thing hasn't really hasn't really happened since World War II, essentially. A, a cool thing to consider, right? Yeah. And pulling out the heaviest sanctions ever against Russia that have ever been pulled out. Russia is more sanctioned now than Iran. Think about that. (laughs) (laughs) Like one of the, one of the reports is that um, the heavy industry that produces Russian tanks is no longer able to operate because they can't get the semiconductors to make the chips to actually make modern battle tanks, the right. ones that have like laser guided missiles and computers that do the calculations for you. Yeah. The best they can do is have basically the shells of them and saying to the crews like, all right, you're going to have to can crank it like it's World War II, you know? 
Now, on the other end side of that, though, like these sanctions are like like the moment they were introduced, like the Russian economy nosedived insanely, which of course is, I mean, of course, like we said earlier, there's a difference between like, of course, like the Russian government, the Russian state versus like the Russian people. Yeah. And I feel like it has to result in like almost like a humanitarian crisis, such economic damage. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Basically, you're seeing like beginning of COVID style runs on banks and supermarkets for like really basic necessities, uh, rationing. Yeah. In in Russia, like Russian economists are just straight up mourning the Russian economy being like, yeah. it's dead. It's gone. Goodbye. Yeah. Which is why you're seeing a huge flight of young people from Russia, basically. Mm-hmm. I think there's like a, something like 100,000 was the last time I checked the number, uh, young Russians who have just left the country because they're like, I don't want to be here anymore. It's becoming a, a bald-faced authoritarian country. It has been for a while, but at least we pretended about like some kind of democracy. And right. now uh, the economy doesn't exist. <laughs> and I don't know if restriction of freedom of movement is going to become a thing because eventually it's like the Russians are going to be like, we need to keep our young people here. And essentially what's happening is that Russia's turning into giant North Korea. It's it's becoming like a, it's it's a new iron curtain, uh, both physical with this restriction of the movement and soon to be digital. Or not even soon to be. It's already not kind soon. of digital. It's happening because Putin has declared Meta, the, the company that, Facebook. that controls Facebook, Mark Instagram, Zuckerberg. WhatsApp. Yeah, the whole Mark Zuckerberg stuff. <laughs> no, literal Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> the man. <laughs> Yeah, that Russia has declared Meta a an extremist organization. <laughs> and so Russia has begun banning Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram. Like these are important parts of the internet, especially as, when you go into Europe and into Russia, like WhatsApp is like yeah. one of the most important platforms communication for communication platform, for sure, yeah. online in Europe. And not even just Europe, the rest of the world also. I was going to say the US is kind of in the uh, minority as most people don't use WhatsApp as an alternative to like just texting or Facebook Messenger. Uh, outside of the United States, WhatsApp is one of the biggest platforms to communicate with people online. Yeah. So for Russia to like cut that off, that's a massive isolating yes. themselves from the rest of the internet, the rest of the world. And of course, there are ways to get around that for people. But for most people, they're not going to be like, well, I guess I'm going to have to start going around the Russian firewalls or whatever from now on getting VPNs and things like that. Yeah. That's a good opportunity to transition into the digital side of this war. It's so crazy. Yeah. Like the geopolitical side alone, like the ramifications of Russia invading Ukraine are bigger than I think anybody really predicted. Yeah. But also online, there's been a lot of interesting stuff yeah. going on that's going to, I think, dictate um, just a lot about the internet in the future. Mm-hmm. The first of all is the absolute memification of war. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying that word. The memes. The memes of war. The dank Ukraine memes. Right. And looking at Ukraine versus Russia, not only does it seem like, oh, Russia has been stuck in the past with their I mean, military. Is that fair to say, you think? Like, just even their military approach? I mean, no. I mean, that's the wild thing about this, is that the reason why the U.S. has been kind of nervous about the Russians is because the Russians have been really aggressively modernizing yeah. For the past like couple decades, apparently, despite that stuff, the Russians have too few of that to actually make a difference because mm. apparently it's really more of an issue of uh, they just can't organize such a huge invasion, like something like close to half of the entire Russian military in an operation. And there's just not enough 
ability for the Russian high command to actually organize something. It, it just feels like it's a huge, big formation moving around, fighting with a, just a ton of tanks. And it feels like that's the, you know, that was the Pentagon fever dream back in the bound of 70s of like, oh, the Russians are going to attack through the full the gap. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're doing the same kind of thing. It's just that it's modern war, you know, a drone. Dr- there's drone brigades in the Ukrainian army where they'll fly commercial drones with just like firebombs, like with munitions strapped to the bottom of it, which feels like what ISIS. This is exactly what we were talking about in our 3D yes. printed gun episode about this being a future of warfare, especially yeah. for a military that is smaller and less financed and things like that. Drones are turning out to be just regular commercial drones that you film little YouTube time lapses on yeah. are turning out to have like such incredible potential for destruction if you put a bomb on it or whatever. And that's that's the thing, right? Is that the the thing that maybe feels antiquated is that the Russian military has a really bad logistical problem. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's the thing I'm hearing. But even outside of that, you've got these uh, Turkish-made TB2 drones, which are like Predator drone style. These are the Bayraktars, which- These are actual you know, military drones. Military drones. And the Ukrainians have like a hundred something of these at this point. Uh, who knows how many are left because, you know, again, fog of war issues. But they've been using them to great effect to destroy actual Russian armor. These are like tanks and and aircraft and things like that? Tanks and armored infantry fighting vehicles and like on the ground aircraft and things like that. The Ukrainians have enough sophisticated and modern approaches to warfare that the Russians haven't seemed to learn the the trick of. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's maybe the thing that feels antiquated is that the Russians have a bunch of fancy toys, but they're not using them in the way that I think a modern military should be using them. Uh, sorry, the think was me thinking that's the the opinion that's going around. Not I yeah. think a modern military shouldn't use it that way. No, oh, no, no. Yeah, you're you're trying. You're synthesizing I'm, what you're hearing from from other military yeah. uh, analysts and things like that. I'm not a I'm not a military historian or a military <laughs> strategist. I'm barely even an armchair general. Yeah. So. <laughs> So in the same way that it feels like, yeah, the, the Russians are very antiquated in their their thinking, their utilization of these like more modern tools. I feel like the same thing can be said about their use of the internet yeah. in the kind of, you know, what I'll call the propaganda war online. Yes. Propaganda feels, that feels like mean and evil and stuff, but basically the information war is really what That's, we mean. Uh, yeah, it's the information war. I think I do prefer propaganda war just because information war sounds like it's against combatants. And a lot of this is like, this is public facing. This is getting yeah. like people on the home front or like in the rest of the world on board with the invasion or getting them to support the Ukrainian army and things like that. Some of it is just these constant messages from President Zelensky being like, please, anybody in the world, send us weapons. We could use it. And part of it is trying to seed those countries' publics with grassroots support. Right. Right. Trying to trying to seed it for there is political will in those countries to send weapons. It seems like like Ukraine, the term we're using is hopium, yeah, which is a playoff of like opium. But this idea of like yes. it's like really addictive hope that people can really get behind. And Ukraine has done an excellent job of using their politicians, using their military, using their even just like citizens, kind of treating them like social media celebrities. Yeah, and taking this approach towards things like you were saying, Zelensky's coming out doing these videos where he's talking to people, you know, trying to build up this like international community behind Ukraine. He's got kind of like a a smolder going on during it. Not to trivialize it, but it's a guy who's an actor, right? He knows how to have a screen presence and he's using that to great effect. 
everything in, in Ukraine is on brand. Yeah. And I don't mean this in like a condescending <laughs> way at all. I think yeah, I think it no, is a yeah. fascinating look at the future of how do you get your message out during wartime and things like that. We were just watching a video of soldiers who were like putting out a video to Ed Sheeran. Yeah. Being like, hey, thanks for like raising money for us at your concert. Would it be okay if we like live stream into your concert in the middle of it? It's so bizarre. Yeah, they know how to use social media. The, the Ed Sheeran thing in particular is very strange to me. I, I, yeah. It's so weird. <laughs> and you contrast that with the Russian use of the internet. Yeah. It's not like that at all. And it's interesting because, you know, we did an episode about the Russian use of the internet for propaganda purposes, Russian hacking, Russian bots, spamming the internet and social media with misinformation. This is the weird thing. In 2014, the Russian military was the thing, right? It was powerful and it was understood as a pure Western counterpart. In 2016, it was like, oh my gosh, Russian cyber warfare is the most advanced in the world. Yeah. And it turns out that like, yes, it is advanced in the sense that they can completely flood Facebook or Twitter or whatever with noise and with hashtags that they want to promote or whatever. And they can sow confusion and division. The term that we referenced is the wilderness of mirrors, which off the top of my head, I don't remember where that originated, who came up with that idea. But the idea that if you're just looking around, you're seeing like all these illusions and it makes it impossible to latch onto what is true. That's very good for Russia because then they get what they want, which is an inability for there to be any cohesion among their enemies. But the issue is not necessarily about creating a good alternative truth. It's just sowing doubt. That's all it ever is. And David, I'm, ex- I'm guessing that you know the point you're going to say is that that's sometimes not even enough, right? Just doing the doubt bit isn't as good as presenting an alternative truth. Yeah, exactly. So you have Ukraine on the one side, knowing how to use social media, using the platform the way it's intended to be used, yeah. and getting a lot more success versus Russia, who it turns out they don't know how to make the positive message. Yeah. And it has not been serving them well at all. It really, the only people who are supporting Russia are people who would be supporting them anyway. I don't think they're gaining new converts through their social media usage. Just in a geopolitical sense, right? Even people who are just kind of like already on the fence and willing to tolerate like Russian shenanigans, like the Germans, right? Germany has basically been like, we feel bad for World War II and we also are energy dependent. So we're going to work with the Russians as much as we can. And Olaf Scholz, the leader of the left-wing government in Germany, said, you know what? We're done. We're cutting off all ties to Russia. We're canceling Nord Stream 2, which was this huge oil and natural gas pipeline Mm. that was going to go directly from Russia to Germany and saying, uh, and we're also increasing military spending. We're (laughs) going to do our part of NATO more. Up to like Like, 2% or something? Up to 2% of their GDP, yeah. And the point is, is that now it's like very obvious that people who are willing to give Russia the benefit of the doubt no longer are going to do so. You're seeing intelligence community folks in China, like Huawei, who is uh, a major contributor to some of the news outlets about like, what is the Chinese government thinking? Basically saying that at this point, Russia is more of a liability than an asset to the Chinese government. No. Now, that's not necessarily what the Politburo and what Xi Jinping are going to actually end up deciding. I don't think that they're going to say, you know what, yes, our major geopolitical rival, US, is better than Russia. But the point is, is that things are getting very complicated right now. And it, a lot of balls are in the air that are, you know, haven't fallen back in the hands of the jugglers. Yeah, we don't really know what's going to happen as a result of this. Um, yeah. Th- as a, a sort of counter to what Zelensky has been doing, Putin came out and basically complained about cancel culture. 
for being why the Russian position is not more popular around the world. Russia been canceled. It's because we're saying the truth. All those SJWs over in the West don't like it. SJWs like Raytheon and uh, the American <laughs> intelligence complex. <laughs> yeah, right. Putin, he said that he was sort of uh, the victim of a witch hunt, just like J.K. Rowling has been. <laughs> For, for his beliefs, which is so, it's just so funny to me, this idea of like, yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Putin. This is what's happening to you. People are just kind of like, they need something to be angry about online or whatever. It's it's wild. So we decided we dislike the Russian invasion of a sovereign country. The other, the other thing is they've basically been taking like a lot of cues from, it seems like Speaking of Q, the kind of like QAnon style of like internet usage, which is conspiracy theory spreading. Yeah. So for example, there's like images of Ukrainian like TikTok influencers and whatever who are in the middle of a war zone. And for, you know, Russia and media to be like, I'm sorry, this is an influencer. Like clearly this is- They're crisis actors. They're a crisis (laughs) actor. Yeah, and they've like put on a costume and makeup to show them in the middle of this war zone. It's like, what even is your, what's your end goal with like making these claims to? Like claiming that they're faking that they're in a war zone. The Russians are trying to have their cake and eat it too, right? The, the Russian army is stalemated at this point. There was a meeting back on the 25th of March where basically the Russian general staff said, congratulations, everybody. Phase one of our incredibly successful invasion has been completed. Now we're going to stage two, which is retreat from many different theaters of the war because we can't win. Start backing um, out, yeah. Start backing out. And so at this point, it's like the Russians have basically transition to just blow up as many civilians as we can to make the Ukrainians hurt uh, and to destroy their infrastructure, to make this a country that can't recover from our invasion. Right. And that and that kind of gets into the question of what does it mean for the Russian invasion to be successful? And what does it mean for the Ukrainian resistance to be successful? Yeah, because to a certain extent, it's like Ukraine doesn't win. They have been damaged so severely by this. And Russia didn't just want to like smash Ukraine, as far as I can tell. They actually wanted to get- That was definitely not the original plan. (laughs) (laughs) Their plan was to acquire Ukraine, essentially, as much of it as they could. So like, yes, Russia's not winning, but Ukraine's not really winning either. I think they're winning in in one sense, the fact they could hold it off, and the fact that they are most likely going to get a ton of international support to rebuild. This is the thing that the Russians were trying to avoid, which is, at this point, even if the Russians- have some kind of victory on the ground, right? The actual win parameters for the Russians were diplomatic. The parameters for winning for the Ukrainians are diplomatic. Yeah. The Russians' win conditions were going to be install potentially some friendly pro-Russian government in Ukraine, maintain and have international recognition of Crimea as part of the Russian Federation, and keep one of Russia's buffer states in its ambit. That's just not gonna happen anymore. So the Russians can't win. They, I think the only way the Russians could win is they uh, do something incredibly dangerous, which is, I think, why the Russians losing is almost as scary as them winning, right? Yeah. But there's the aspect of Ukraine, which I think you could go back to Arestovich, Alexei Arestovich saying, our win would just be to show that Ukraine is a coherent and self-sufficient state and to maintain our 1991 borders. That That's victory for the Ukrainians, is getting Crimea back and Donetsk and Luhansk. I, I don't know if that's going to happen, right? Again, it's it's probably going to be both sides are going to come away with this very bloody, very tired, and unhappy with the result. 
How many people across the world, if you were to ask them about Ukraine and it's like right to independence and things like this, <laughs> would even know what you're talking about? Yeah. Versus now, Ukraine suddenly like has crafted the narrative of like, we're an independent state that's being invaded by Russia. They're trying to take us over. The text BLM on lots of liberal hashtags and uh, bios has been replaced with Slava Ukraini, you know, and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. You know? Little Ukraine flag emojis and things like yeah. that. Like now, if you talk to people about does Ukraine deserve to be an independent state, they're probably going to be like, what are you talking about? Of course they do. They're like a country. That's already a defeat for the Russia. <laughs> yeah, that that alone. Russia does not want that. Russia doesn't want people thinking of Ukraine as independent yeah. at all. That'd be like if Florida left from the United States of America and all of a sudden everybody in the world was like, oh, yeah, no, Florida's just like a separate country, isn't it? And the U.S. would be like, what? No, come on, guys. What is <laughs> Anything short of the Russians showing up immediately with like their Spetsnaz guys, potentially executing Zelensky and his leaders and commanders and replacing them with, you know, maybe uh, Yanukovych comes back or something like that, you know? Yeah. Outside of that, there's really not a situation where Russia comes out on top with this. And that's just not, that's not in the cards anymore, you know? Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about Ukraine, like Ukraine's success across the world, trying to gain support and Russia's failures to do that on the internet. But there is still a lot of support for Russia out there, particularly online. Yeah. And we should probably talk about that right now instead of ignoring it as if it doesn't exist. For sure. The Russian line has been, we are invading Ukraine because there's a massive Nazi movement in Ukraine. And this is the only way to squash it. Yeah. It's not like entirely false. No. There is a far right movement. Yeah, I would even say movements, right? Movements, um, right. It's really multiple. Yeah. There, back in 2014, I mean, that you could see, if you look at like photos from Euromaidan, you're bound to see um, a flag with sort of an okay sign, but three fingers up. That's the sign of Svoboda, which is just straight up a Ukrainian far right nationalist neo-Nazi party. Svoboda. Svoboda. S-V-O-B-O-D-A. There is also Right Sector, another one of these parties. And then, of course, Azov Battalion, which is a far-right militia, which had just been a street gang up until the Russian invasion, which is a nice narrative. If you don't want far-right extremists or extremists of any type to exist, don't invade their country because that only ever galvanizes them. And also, they've been gaining support. I mean, for people yes. who don't know... You know, yeah. all they know is Ukraine is being invaded. We should support Ukraine. These yeah. guys are Ukrainians. They yeah. say they need help fighting and, and gaining uh, uh, weapons and things. So you have a lot of well-meaning people who have been donating money to like Azov Battalion, which is just straight up a neo-Nazi militia. Yeah. You also have a lot of people such as the tankies <laughs> online. Oh, yes. The tankies are a very confusing group. To be honest, I, I still don't feel like I completely understand them. Uh, tankies historically have been Marxist-Leninist sort of communists in the West who have gone to bat for the communist regime in Moscow saying, no, anything they do is good because America and capitalism bad. And the extent of their geopolitical acumen has been America bad. The USSR was not like an idyllic, like communist utopia, even if for the most idealistic communist, really, like they would not argue that. Yeah, exactly. But there are people in the current world who think basically, yeah, no, it was ideal. And that's current tankies, right? But somehow that like support for a idealized, completely fantasy version of the USSR and the People's Republic of China has translated now to their modern incarnations, which again, the PRC is just a one party 
capitalist oligarchy. You know, the Russian Federation is a one-party capitalist oligarchy. And so the fact that they're supporting it is maddening because these are supposedly like Marxists and communists who are tanking. Like super hardcore communists. Which, uh, again, there's uh, a great line from Adam something as a guy I follow on YouTube who basically will just for, refer to them as red fascists. <laughs> <laughs> and these guys are loving this invasion. They Man, do they it. love this invasion. It's a, great, it's a great conflict between the United States and Russia in, the, in their opinion. And not only that, they're like totally into the line of like, yeah, Ukraine is full of Nazis to the point where if you go and watch them talk about the conflict, they don't even call them Ukrainian. They just call them Nazis. At best, they call them Ukraine Nazis. Ukraine Nazis. You might say, but David, they're probably just talking about these Nazis you're talking about exist in Ukraine. But no, they talk about the government as Nazis, random civilians. Volodymyr Zelensky, the John Stewart centrist Jewish guy, know, Jewish yeah. actor is a Nazi. He's yeah. a Nazi. Civilians in these hospitals that have been bombed, they were Nazis. And Evan and I have been checking out some of their chatter on Telegram, which is a truly upsetting thing. <laughs> oh, it's so bad. I have not it's been bad. I haven't been so kind of disturbed by the research we've done for this podcast since our neo-Nazi episode. Yeah. Because they're, they're just posting like dead bodies with like, like images and videos of dead bodies celebrating the deaths of these people. Cause they're like, well, they were all Nazis. They're all good for nothing and deserve to die. Like, just like horrible stuff all over and a lot of celebration for Russia. It's just a very confusing phenomenon to observe because the way they behave and talk and everything seems to be like pretty much identical to the way that a lot of straight up out and proud Nazis will talk. Here's the thing. It's yes, they, they want to cosplay being the Russian army defeating the Nazis. But the problem is, is that this is the pot calling the kettle black. Yeah. To a certain extent. There's a fantasy that the Ukrainian government is itself infiltrated by Nazis. They'll look at, say, look at Svoboda, look at Right Sector. Right Sector and Svoboda have together held one seat in the, whatever, like 400 seat government parliament in Ukraine since 2019. Yeah. In 2014, when Svoboda was at the peak of their popularity, they went from having 36 to 31 seats. Mm. Svoboda and Right Sector have been doing worse since the Russian invasion in the country. The only group that we can say of like Nazis we can identify they're doing well are Azov, largely because literally they're in Mariupol, they're in the Donetsk region fighting rebels there. Basically the Ukrainian army has said, well, we needed you early on and we can't just be like, I, I guess everybody go die or something mm -hmm. like that. Though that's kind of what they're doing. They're like, we have all these Nazis. We could just throw them as cannon fodder at the at the Russians. Right. We will use them in the least humanized way possible. Yes. We will like throw them at them. And like that's what's happening in Mariupol as well, right? Because yeah. Mariupol is being besieged. The only unit in the region is basically Azov Battalion. And I've been hearing chatter that the Russians basically have seized the city. I don't think it's entirely clear at this point if, if that's the case. But the point is, is that if there is even an Azov battalion after this war, I mean, it's not going to be nearly as glamorous, I don't think. Well, and and some of this chatter coming out, because a lot of the tankies are themselves members of the Russian military. Yeah. So a lot of these videos and things are coming out of like just the active war zone. They'll be filming each other, you know, Russian soldiers. And as far as they're claiming, they're claiming Azov battalion 
is gone. It's been completely annihilated. Right. Do I believe that? Not at this point, but I'm sure that they have taken like some insane losses and they've been pretty decimated. But they'll be talking about like, oh yeah, Azov Battalion is dead. Like everybody cheer. We've, we did it. We killed them. Time to kill the other Nazis in the rest of the country, AKA just other Ukrainians. Yeah. So it's not even like, okay, we killed this like like identifiable Nazi battalion. It's like, no, they're all Nazis. We got to kill all of them. But here's the thing. And I had mentioned sort of pot calling the kettle black. The Russian army has their own Nazis that they're deploying. Into yes, the war. exactly. Yeah. I mean, there are actual straight up Nazis in the, there's task force Rusich, which is one of Russia's most vicious neo-Nazi mercenary units. And mm-hmm. what is their symbol? It's the, oh gosh, the three triangles. Yeah, I don't remember what that symbol is called, but yeah. A lot of these symbols are things we've talked about in our alt-right episode when we were talking about how to identify neo-Nazis. They're not hard to identify. They usually are very proud of it. Yeah. Um, there's Wagner Group, Grupa Wagner, which is also full of Nazis. Their leader has like a bunch of like neo-Nazi like skinhead tattoos all over his body. Yeah, yeah. So it's like- yeah, the, the Ukrainians and the Russians are both deploying Nazis against each other. Hopefully Wagner and you know Azov will destroy each other in the future or something like that. But the point is, is that it's incredibly disingenuous to say that because there are Nazi people in Ukraine, therefore we have to go invade the country. I would ask anybody, David, we'll, we'll, do, a, we'll do a little <laughs> test here. Hey, David, uh, are there Nazis in the United States? Yes. I, we reported on them. <laughs> you, we've reported on them. Uh, should yes. the Russians invade us to alleviate us of all these Nazis? Well, somebody's government better get rid of all the Nazis. <laughs> no, of course not. No, Russia invading the U.S., so, an absurd solution. Why? Because there's a ton of people who aren't Nazis, right? Yeah. <laughs> even if you agree that maybe we should kill Nazis or something like that, which even that I feel like there's a certain aspect of like, I don't know if just killing people because of ideological reasons is a good a good enough reason to invade a country. Yeah, yeah. But there is this aspect of like, okay, there's a bunch of, bunch of people who are completely disgusted by these people in the country. Yeah. And so there's absolutely this entire aspect of the narrative that tankies, the Russian government, and folks who are, I think, willingly pulled into this line of discussion, who are trying to be anti-fascist, but are actually falling for a fascist line in this way. And this is a great segue, Evan, because there are many people across the world who want to come and get in on the the whole war. This is what we're calling war tourism. I'm getting in on the ground floor of the (laughs) war. I don't know if, did we come up with the term war tourism? It's in our notes. I was so tired when we were writing this that I can't remember. I'm going to see, hold on. There are all over like Reddit, there are these like, uh, and 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 beyond in the internet, there are people organizing ways that they themselves can go fight in Ukraine. Sorry, David. In 1988, it was coined by PJ O'Rourke. So, oh, O'Rourke. <laughs> <laughs> so you have these these guys organizing on Reddit, organizing on like TikTok, who are basically deciding, I want to go fight for Ukraine. In many cases. I want to fight specifically for the Azov Battalion yeah. because they are fanboys of this neo-Nazi group or they are like Boogaloo Boys, which is just, I, I don't even know if we've mentioned Boogaloo Boys on our podcast, but oh my gosh. That's, that's just a whole other like type of, you know, uh, extremist far right guys who like love going and like starting up conflict and whatever and like yeah. injecting themselves into conflicts. They're LARPing, they're like live action role playing, like I'm going to go fight in this glorious battle and I'm going to live stream yeah. it. 
against the the dirty <laughs> the, the dirty Russian hordes, the, the orcs. The orcs, yes. <laughs> I've been seeing the the phrase, yeah, the, the go fight the yeah. orcs, you know. Um, literally like using that kind of terminology. And you're getting like all kinds of people going and discovering. Evan and I were just talking about this, this idea of like, yeah, I'm ready for a fight. I'm going to go in and I'm going to become a respected military leader or something like that. That was a meme. But I mean, yes, that like yeah. there's a there's a weird disconnect between I'm going to go there and be super cool and I'm going to go there and be cannon fodder for the actual Ukrainian military units that know what they're doing. Yeah, you have people with no military experience showing up being like, hey, can I join the, the international religion? Yeah. yeah. And they're like getting upset that they're being sent to like front lines and whatever. And then streaming it like the experience of them traveling to Ukraine and then being in a war zone for like internet clout. I was following a bunch of stories by the journalist, Ashley Stewart, Mm. who was talking about one, one man in particular who came in from Texas and he was talking about Instagram or no TikTok. That's it. He was, he was proudly showing everyone the TikTok video that he posted about him actually going to Ukraine that had 2 million views and that he like would not stop talking about how good this was for his like TikTok clout going into this war. It was so bizarre. And like other people who are like just showing up and like denying the fact that this is like even like really a dangerous thing. Yeah. That they're entering into. I feel like I'm going to call it superhero brain. Yeah. This like action movie mentality of like conflict is dangerous for other people, but I'm the hero. I'm the main character of my life. This is just going to be cool for yeah. me. To say nothing of the modern battlefield between two modern mechanized armies that it's it's the most deadly place you could possibly be on Earth. And like other people are like freaking out because like for some of them, like this is the first time they've even like really gone overseas. And all of a sudden they're like being questioned. And yeah. People don't speak English here. You know, just like routine stuff. It's like, okay, this is a war zone, dude. Like it's it's such a bizarre phenomenon to observe. Yeah. And also along that same line, People posting things online is very dangerous for uh, operational security. Operational yeah. security. Back like a week ago, there was like this thing of like a Russian missile artillery attack struck the base where a lot of these foreign legion guys were staying. Foreign legion meaning people coming from outside Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, towners, uh, looky loos coming in, wanting to be part of the fight. Some of yeah. them legitimately understanding the situation, like former military guys who have been in active combat zones and some being like these Reddit brigade kind of folks who are like, I want to get up dudes to, <laughs> because, <laughs> I'm, up because I'm here. <laughs> Give me the up dudes. And apparently the position was like blown, like people afterwards were saying like the, the unit is completely destroyed because we lost 60 something people in this artillery attack. And I can't help but think that it was because so many people are these internet folks who are trying to get clout by uploading videos And there is so much reporting that's using like geolocating to try and find based on like, if you do a selfie with any kind of building in the background, you better believe that if the New York Times can figure out where you are, Russian intelligence can find out where you are well, and this use was a, that to blow up your position. Yeah, and I mean, this is a really popular game, or it was back, you know, when I was younger. This is a really popular game on like 4chan was Capture the Flag. Yeah. And it would literally be post a picture of a flag somewhere in the entire world <laughs> and people would try to figure out where it was taken and they'd yeah. be like okay let's look at the shadows on this flag 
what's the angle of the shadows is probably this time of day. We can probably figure out that where the sun is positioned, that means it's probably going to be like within this hemisphere. Oh, there's a bird flying in the sky. What kind of bird is that? Where is that native to? Yada, yada. And like slowly getting closer and closer until they find the flag somewhere on earth. Anything you post on the internet, people are going to figure out what it is. Like you, you are not safe. This is a game of capture a flag where the people already know you're probably in Western Ukraine somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a game of capture the flag where they already basically know where you are. The only question is exactly like which building yeah and they have the incentive to kill you if you lose and you're playing by not just posting one image you're constantly giving updates about where you are and you're probably not even like doing a good job of hiding your metadata that shows where you're at physically located and this is a really interesting thing and i i had noticed this a while back and i was saying this to david while we were prepping is I want you to think about all the videos and photos you've seen from Ukraine. You can maybe list off two. I can list off two where I've actually seen Ukrainian armor, Ukrainian actual military units, not just the territorial defense like militia guys walking around like after a fight. I'm talking about like actual active military units because the Ukrainian army is huge. They have a ton of equipment and you don't see it. Why? I think it's because they're, it's OPSEC. It's operational security. They're like, we don't want the, the Russians to know where we are. They have a yeah. ton of artillery and have them blow us up because that was a huge issue in the Donbass, uh, Donbass war before this was the second the Russians knew where a Ukrainian unit was, they were like, great, we have 20 multi-rocket uh, launchers just sitting around doing nothing. We'll blow them up. You could destroy an entire battalion that way. Yeah. And so the Ukrainians, again, being back to being on brand, there's a lot of intel discipline yeah. With the Ukrainian actual military being like, don't upload anything because you'll die. You'll you'll die and your unit will die if you upload anything because the Russians will use that against us. Another interesting element is hacking. Old school hacker collective Anonymous trying to fight against uh, Russia. What have those guys been up to? Yeah, Anonymous don't come up that much anymore. <laughs> Simpler days in the internet. I know. When they were just like DDoS, uh, Church of Scientology and whatever. <laughs> But there's something called Squad 303, which is a you know anonymous hacker group. Basically, they're just finding phone numbers in Russia and asking people to start spamming Russians with messages yeah. to be like, the Russian invasion is bad. Here's what's going on. From inside Russia, it's your responsibility to help stop this, put an end to this, you random Russian citizen. And then just like en masse sending this yeah. out. It's like dropping like flyers over Nazi Germany being like, Hitler's a bad man, you know. Or, you know, the flyers they drop in, in Japan after they yeah. being like, you have just witnessed an atomic bomb, uh, surrender now. Yeah. This is like what America can do to you kind of a You've thing. You just witnessed an economic nuclear bomb of sanctions. This is what Anonymous yeah. can do to you. <laughs> but then there's this whole element of like people getting like random citizens, like actually pulling them in and getting them involved. Yeah. Because on both, both Ukraine and Russia are starting to like dox soldiers. It's so bizarre. And their families. Yes. Doxing being the the practice of revealing like personal information, private personal information about these people. So you've got like the Russian government being like, here is somebody who is a Ukrainian sympathizer or a Ukrainian soldier. Here's who their family is. Here's where they live. All the information we can provide about them. Do what you will with that information, the public. Yeah, if somebody if somebody maybe wanted to murder these people, I suppose they could. Yeah, now. and like, that's so bizarre. This idea that even the people back home, and I don't know what the ramifications of the doxing has been. I don't know if anybody's actually been hurt or motivated by who it. Who knows? There's a lot of fear about fifth college 
column in Ukraine. I assume the similar thing in Russia because uh, Russia already has a uh, has a revealed practice of murdering and like poisoning and jailing dissidents. Yeah. And also as a kind of like offshoot of this practice is all these videos you can find online where like Russian POWs are being yeah. taken captive. And then Ukrainians are like videoing them, calling their families, being like, it's me, a Russian soldier, a Russian pilot, whatever. I'm calling you mom and dad. We've invaded Ukraine. It's bad. We shouldn't be doing this. And the family chastising them and then posting those videos online. Ivan, where have you been? Ma, sorry, I'm in Ukraine. I'm, I'm committing war crimes. Like, ah, oh, I knew it. You, you're such a bad son. Well, so many of these things, honestly, they're kind of like that, where yeah. it's like, they're like, I thought you were at a training exercise or something yeah. like that. And it's well, like, nope, they weren't training exercises. But here's the thing, and this is part of just knowing a little bit about how the Russian military works, is that a lot of a lot of troops are conscripts. Yeah. There are two kinds of military services. There's professional servicemen who are like folks who volunteer. But also Russia has kind of like the way that like Israel or like Switzerland have or like even Sweden where you are contractually obligated as a person from the age of 18 to 26 to spend 12 months of your life in the military. And the idea is that these conscript troops are not actually allowed to be deployed outside of Russian territory. Oh. So the issue is it's only professional troops who are volunteering to go fight in wars for the Russian army are supposed to be deployed outside of the country. Problem is the Russians probably don't have enough of these people. So they're, that's why the whole hubbub of like, these are conscript troops who are be sending as, being sent in as cannon fodder was yeah. such a big deal because within Russia's own laws and expectations among these people is that I'm never actually gonna leave the country. Right. So when they're saying, hey, I'm in Ukraine, that's why usually a lot of these families are freaking out because they're like, uh, that's you're not supposed to be outside the country. Right, this right. is an active war zone in another, on like foreign soil. That was not part of the arrangement for our family. It'd be like sending the National Guard into yeah. like- It's like, yeah. hey, I'm going for my weekend sort of, you know, thing with the National Guard. And it's like, sorry, mom, I'm actually in Canada fighting the Canadian army right now. <laughs> right, yeah. So one last thing I'd like to bring up about the kind of digital aspect of this, and this is probably, I don't, I, I kind of feel like this is probably going to be the most important, like long lasting one. It's the effect of cryptocurrency on Ukraine and Russia in the middle of the war zone. In our episode about cryptocurrency, Evan and I were mostly pretty negative on it. I'm cracking my knuckles. Can you hear me <laughs> cracking my knuckles? There was one positive that we identified about cryptocurrency. And that was that in situations like war zones or situations where people's economies are really wrecked or unstable, that cryptocurrency could be a way of mitigating that and trying to get funds around, you know, uh, autocracies and things like that. Or Titanic historic sanctions. Or Titanic historic money. sanctions, that's right. Both of those things have come up as part of the war in Ukraine. I was just gonna say, there was at the very beginning of the war, like a huge tank in Bitcoin. Yes. But it fell like 16,000 per Bitcoin, which is, it like, it like almost halved immediately. Yeah, but Bitcoin has actually done a course correction during this because a lot of, uh, not just Bitcoin, Ethereum um, and some other stable coins out there have been used as a way of sending funds to Ukraine to the point where Ukraine has raised millions of dollars. I think that, I think random people donating their cryptocurrencies mm -hmm. to Ukraine has eclipsed some like actual government spending to help Ukraine. As far as I can tell, it's been, was it 10, $10 million is what I'm seeing according to Al Jazeera at the moment. So like 
five bitcoins or whatever. <laughs> and, yeah, and th- this was this was actually about like a week ago or so. Yeah, so it's probably even even higher than that. But it's been a way of being able to provide funds to Ukraine as their own economy has been just like completely wrecked as a result yeah. of the invasion. To the point where Zelensky is actually trying to put into effect making cryptocurrency of just a part of the Ukrainian economy Hmm. and using this as part of the effort to rebuild Ukraine later, trying to like put the Ukrainian economy like on the blockchain. Interesting. What that means exactly, I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows what that means, but there will definitely be some kind of like legislative framework to allow these crypto platforms to like operate in Ukraine like more seamlessly. But- Along with that, what I think crypto people don't realize is once you start doing that, there's going to be a lot of regulatory stuff that's going to be implemented. Yep. And that kind of kills the point of Bitcoin a little bit. It kind of kills <laughs> the point of it. Yeah. Part of why crypto works at all is because it is completely separate from all of that stuff. Yeah. That's why you can use it to get around a bad economy. That's why you can use it to get around sanctions like is going on in Russia. They've got these really damaging sanctions being put into place. Yeah. And using Bitcoin or Ethereum or something is not going to supplant like the Russian economy. Yeah. They're not going to be able to get around it entirely, but it's a way of like allowing people to get by, make ends meet in the midst of these sanctions. You know, for all the bad things I've had to say about crypto and NFTs and and all this stuff, I do think that there is a possibility that they can be utilized in a way that will actually help people. Yeah. I still think a majority of crypto stuff is like absolutely a scam yeah. that will like completely turn around the next day and try to scam the same people it helped once they have the money to give back. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right. Well, we covered a ton of stuff from Woo. the history of Ukraine's formation to the conflict to the weird online stuff that's come out of it. I'm looking at real time for the conversation, David. We've been talking for two hours. Real time with Bill Maher. Real time with David and Evan. Two hours, David. Woo. I know. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to heavily edit this episode down to be manageable <laughs> for sure. But, you know, we're going to have even more, a few more things to say before we go. Let's go to the jump. Yeah. And we'll talk about it there. We'll see you after. I've got my cold coffee. Oh, Uh, that's good. No. Oh, oh, that's oh, a good I jump. love that. Oh, oh that's a good jump. Love that jump. That was an awesome jump. The music great, was just so good. Great music we just heard there. Um, yeah. Yeah, I always put the music in after the fact, so I have no <laughs> idea what we listened to. For all I know, it was some kind of like... It's like a or scary music, right? Some very scary. Yeah. Um, oh, that was relaxing music that we just listened to, David. Well, usually I put in some kind of little audio montage of... Like taking the sources that we use oh, and I, I make yeah, a, I build yeah. a little audio montage real quick, just Ooh. kind of throwing them all together to give you a sense of the absolute insanity of sitting through and researching all these things. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll do an alt version of this where I say, mm. Ooh, that was a great montage. To listen to David. <laughs> this will be the first time I don't do it. I actually might not do it. <laughs> Who knows? Because I want to get this out quickly. I probably am not going to like go through and edit that, yeah. cut that together. All right, so we come back from the jump. I say, David, great montage that you definitely <laughs> did. Um, I wanted to actually spend a, <laughs> I wanted to spend a little bit of time thinking about some miscellaneous ideas that we yeah. really didn't cover in the the main section, just because they didn't fit per, in a very good spot anywhere. Yeah. One thing is, I want to yell at you all. Come here, come here. I want to yell at you all about this no fly zone that you've been that you've been yammering on about. 
I just want to tell you that it's stupid. Okay. And let me tell you why. First of all, there was like this like video of artists in New York taking like paper airplanes, throwing them around the Guggenheim. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I remember a time when artists were anti-war and not, please start a war, please. I'd love a war. <laughs> please, yeah, directly get involved in a war with Russia. Please directly get involved with a war with Russia. It's not like the the peace fairy comes and establishes a no-fly zone over Ukraine. It means American and like NATO jets flying into Ukraine, seeing a Russian fighter and being like, Mm-mm, you're not allowed to fly here and blowing it up, which is just a declaration of war. You're just at war with Russia at that point. A no-fly zone basically is, I'm already at war with this country, but I also don't want them to fly commercial airliners is really what it's for. Yeah, uh, like Zelensky has been advocating for like a no-fly zone over Ukraine in order to stop Russian jets and things from going It makes through. sense for him to say he's already at war with the Russians. It does, yeah. It, it makes sense that, that he would advocate for that. I don't I don't hold that against him. Yeah. But what we're seeing is a lot of people who would generally be, I think, anti-war. Yeah. Basically advocating, and I don't think they even realize, advocating for just the United States to basically just declare war on Russia yeah. in order to implement this no-fly zone. Like, that's the one time where, like, I feel like Biden's, like, shut up, you, you, you dog-faced pony soldier is, like, working in his favor because he's just, like, he just does not have time to listen to people being like, what if we did nuke the Russians? Have you considered nuking the Russians, sir? Yeah, dog-faced pony soldier. <laughs> I... <laughs> So an interesting thing I have noticed, though, is that in polls where people <laughs> where people are advocating for a no-fly zone, in the same poll, they'll say, do you advocate in the United States going to Russia, sending military forces to Russia, and then shooting down Russian planes? Overwhelmingly, people will say no, which I think means that people aren't necessarily, when they advocate for a no-fly zone, I don't think that generally people even know what that means. Yeah. I think it's a very dangerous road to go down and the president agrees with me david's being very nice where he's like i don't think you understand and i'm speaking i'm I'm being very uh very hostile Evan, evan's very upset about this well the idea of two nuclear powers i just want you all to realize that that means a thing right? yeah right? But like, the, the idea of two nuclear powers just directly declaring war on each other it's a bad idea is of that's like such a dangerous thing and and but there are some people though i've been following some like you know liberal Really going after the liberals this Arr. episode. There's a lot of liberal commentators <laughs> and journalists. Yeah, yeah, go Biden. I actually, I have to say, I, I, I've thought that the American government has been very intelligent and trying to avoid sleepwalking into conflict with Russia over a lot of this, which I have to say, yeah. it's very reassuring. Sleepy Joe, he ain't sleepwalking into conflict with Russia. Ooh, I could probably make that go. more concise. No, no, nope, that's the joke but right there. That's a good joke. <laughs> Uh, but there are a lot of, yeah, like liberal commentators and journalists and things who are like saying things like, if if the nukes start flying, at least we went out doing what was right or something. And I'm like, I I don't know, dude, that's a pretty, that's a pretty like heavy thing to weigh. I feel like a lot of people are being very cavalier. I want these HuffPo journalists or whoever they are, New York Times people to like yeah. sit on the end of the, the missile as it like falls into Omsk 37 or whatever, yeah. like from, <laughs> from Dr. From Strange Dr. Love. Strange Love, yeah. And I understand there's like a desire to to do more, to get involved and to like end this. And it's like, that's just kind of not how war works. Yeah. You don't, you don't fix war with more war. Right. Yeah. But, and also like resolution to war is what it's been a month. 
It's very quick. The fact that Russia is even considering starting like a controlled retreat, that's like so fast. Yeah. I understand that desire, but I think it's like, I don't know. I, I just don't think that's a realistic proposal. And I think it's probably a dangerous proposal. <laughs> yeah. A dangerous proposal that most of the intelligence community and the, the people who actually make these decisions agree with. Yeah. That's a nice little PSA from... From me and from Evan. You, you silly goofs. From, don't from don't Uncle start Joe. a nuclear war, you silly goofs. <laughs> One last thing I would like to mention, yeah. which is just really weird, and, and this probably also is like just a horrible portent of things to come. <laughs> so, is- <laughs> as we kind of established, most of this episode is our horrible portents for what's, for what's to come. <laughs> what what I wanted to mention is that like a, like a week ago, I believe, a video came out of Zelensky, you know, in front of the the wall. He's always in front of the like step and repeat patterns behind him at his yeah. podium, talking about or talking to the Russian people, asking them to lay down their arms, give up. Whoa. Russia wins. Zelensky was just saying, "Pack it in, folks." I want to give little kisses to my best friend Putin. <laughs> this video was pretty quickly identified as being fake. This was a deep fake. Yeah. I don't know if we've ever mentioned deep fakes on the podcast. Maybe in passing. It, basically, the tech is you take a person and then you like digitally take their face off. Yeah. You rip their face off digitally and then replace it with another person's face. You reskin them. Yeah. You reskin their face with the face of a different person. Yes. You, you remap one face onto another face. Yeah. Easy. Easy. Just so, put another face on our face. Yeah, but this technology is like really good. And yeah. the deep fake of Zelensky was not really good. It was it wasn't like particularly good. It was pretty easy to identify. Like, this is wrong. Something's up here. And yeah. Zelensky did come out and he was like, yo, that wasn't me, guys. This is me. Check it out. I'm outside. I'm getting all kinds of angles. I'm way more charismatic than that guy. <laughs> and that, like, yeah, weird puppet. So yeah, the deep fake, it didn't work. And I don't even really know who was behind the deep fake. Yeah. I don't know if anybody does, but I do think that in the future, that's something like majorly to watch out for yeah. because being able to just deep fake politicians into saying things that they don't want to be saying yep. in the middle of a fog of war where it's very difficult to identify yep. what the heck is actually going on, that can be a very powerful weapon. That's honestly, that feels like that's been the Russian tactic a little bit is basically just being take yeah. fog of war and turn it up to 11, basically. Right. Let's get fog of war in the middle of peace. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> fog of always. Fog yeah. of always. <laughs> that kind of feels like a nice summation of the whole experience of witnessing the digital aspect of this war. Just a lot of weird things that aren't quite working, but it's like, oh, dang. But that's a direction we're heading, isn't it? This is going to be very weird in the future. Yeah. I don't even I don't even know how to predict it all. Throw it all in the garbage. No more videos. Get rid of videos. Just get rid of video. Get rid of the internet. It's too complicated. It's bad. It's bad for you. Um, and speaking of which, on our next episode, Evan and I are going to be talking about how to actually sift through the internet, or at least our approach to it. Yeah. Um, not just the internet, but sort of information generally, and how to try to identify what is reliable and what to throw away, and what is probably has nuggets of truth that you can learn from and find patterns in that you can then apply to other information. I realize I teach this to, to my students in my own career, teaching history at university. I'm like, hey, I should I should teach my my uh, podcast audience this as well. So we'll talk yeah. about that. So this is a kind of a two parter in a way. Be sure to check in for that. But for now, this has been the Anderson brothers wishing you the best brother. <laughs> Have a great brother, everybody. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm Evan Axel Anderson, your other co-host. Very good. Wishing you a sweet 
baby bus. <laughs> <laughs>